0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Wall Street closed the week with a rally with all major indices up 2% to make it one of the strongest rallies in Dow history and analysts Uh, are saying that a bear market days may well be over. Airbus, Boeing, General Dynamics, MTU, Northrop Grumman, Saab, Talos, and many other companies all reported earnings. And as company after company announces share buybacks, lawmakers and even some senior industry figures are noting that it's not a good look for the industry to complain about innovation, the rising cost of retaining labor, uh, the pricey uh, nature of investing in new infrastructure, all the while able to return tens of billions of dollars uh, to investors. President Biden took on Darren Woods as the ExxonMobil CEO was telling investors about a massive share buyback. Rishi Sunak is now prime minister and moving to implement budget cuts across government. Ben Wallace remains defense secretary, but will have to come up with savings. We'll talk a little bit more uh, about what that means for UK defense. Joining us as they do every week to discuss all of this and more are Dr. Rock Ron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Sash Tuza of the Independent Equity Research Firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy uh, here in Washington, D.C. Uh, everybody, thanks very much for joining us. Good to have the whole team back together again. Yeah, Vargo, it's great to be here. Wouldn't be
1: a weekend without it.
2: It's great. It's great to be back together. Thanks, Olga.
0: Yeah,
1: really pleased to be on, Vargo. Thank you.
0: Uh, thanks, thanks very much uh, indeed uh, for joining us. And before we get started, uh, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly Cyber Report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage, and our AUSA coverage was sponsored by Leonardo DRS and Safran, and check out our two weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by our contributing editor Chris Cavus, and our producer Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters, and the downlink with our contributing editor Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful weekly look at all things space. Uh, Ron, uh, let's uh, start off with you. And we're going to double shot uh, Ron and uh, Sash on this, in part because it's earnings season and the performance of the group on the street was inextricably linked uh, to the results they announced. Um, Let's just get the the macro out of the way, uh, Ron, and then dive into a little bit of the specifics. Right. I mean, there's been a sense we were in a bear market and volatility is uh, up. Uh, And here we have what is starting to become a pattern, right? Very strong earnings coming uh, uh, from uh, companies. Uh, Economy looking like it's growing actually a little more uh, robustly uh, than had been expected, Uh, right? We've been talking about the uh, growing expectation that that a recession will be a mild one. And now even the Fed is figuring out exactly how much cold water they've got to splash on this economy to make sure that they don't make a big mistake, given that they were slow to react. Walk us through... You know the week. What was driving perceptions, and then how earnings kind of played into that, right? And played into how the group uh, finished. And then I have a follow-up question to get to some of the specifics of those earnings, but take it away from a top-line perspective.
3: Yeah. So uh, broadly, if you look at the market, like you said in your opening remarks, um, both the uh, S and P and and the Nasdaq were uh, up over over two percent. The Nasdaq was up two and a quarter, and actually the S and P was up uh, uh, almost almost four. Um, so when, when you look at um, the individual names in the group, uh, Boeing was actually the laggard on the week. It was up uh, under 2%. Uh, the winner of all the large caps in the week was Raytheon Technologies, which was up almost 7.5%. Uh, Lockheed Martin was up know, 6.5%. Uh, Northrop, 5%. General Dynamics, about 3.5%. So you know, broadly, um, the group performed quite well. Uh, when you look at where the ten-year Treasury ended the week, it was about four um, percent. The VIX index, you know, the, the volatility measure we keep an eye on, you know, pulled back some uh, to, to the mid twenties, around twenty-six, but it's still it's still elevated. Um, you know, oil prices between uh, 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 Brent crude, and um, it was uh, about ninety dollars. Um, so it, you know, energy prices are still are still elevated. Um, I would just caution. I mean, there's still, I think, a tension in the market of uh, kind of where we are um, in terms of of the economy. Um, I think it's probably imprudent and too soon to declare victory. It just really depends right. on what what happens with uh, with inflation and and a lot of different variables. Um, so um, you I- know, it's. <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I was just trying to re- reflect market schizophrenia, right? Oh my God, the sky's falling. Oh my God, it's really great. Oh my God. You know, it's almost like a manic, depressive kind of uh, season we're in, which plays into your volatility model, right?
3: Yeah, of course, right? And it's if you know, just look at, let's just see where the next inflation print is. If that comes out higher than expected, the market will probably sell off. If it comes in lower, the market will go I up. And mean, so there's still just a lot, a lot of variables. But it was for sure uh, so far. Uh, an encouraging earnings season, and in fact, in fact, many of the older economy companies, if you will, said respectfully of industrials in our space, uh, perform better than you know the, the the tech world. So there is some you know stratification going on in the market, and and currently you know the 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 older economy companies send it, seem to be doing better.
0: Um, let me uh, take you to specific earnings. Uh, you said Boeing uh, was off. They posted a a, a tough uh, quarter. Uh, Dave Calhoun, the chief executive, uh, saying that he's going to be looking forward and not looking uh, backward because you had an exchange with him that was um, uh, that folks thought was was a um, a thoughtful question on your part uh, and perhaps as a good an answer as a CEO can give on his part. But walk us through the performance of the group uh, overall. We had Northrop, we had General Dynamics. Uh, obviously, we heard also from Raytheon. Uh, walk us through what we heard and what expectations are.
3: Yeah, so we, we had a mountain of earnings this week, right? I mean, those plus more, right? Um, and, and I would say this, they're different companies are performing very differently. Um, just let me highlight a couple a couple key points. You know, Northrop Grumman came out, they gave an outlook, not just for what happened this year, but their outlook for next year, uh, and they're expecting you know, mid-single-digit growth as they go into next year on their top line. Lockheed Martin reported, uh, the stock that we talked about this a little bit last week, you know, responded very well because they said they're going to buy back 10% of the company. But their outlook into the next year is pretty flat. All three hires reported on Friday, and there was a really, really bumpy quarter for them. So we're, you know, uh, this rising tide isn't really lifting all ships the same way. It's, it's a function of, and we all kind of knew this, what programs you're exposed to, where those programs are in you know in their in their evolution and and so on and so forth. But a, a couple broad trends I can highlight. Every company, and I think we can say this beyond aerospace, but for sure in aerospace and defense, supply chain is still an issue. And in supply chains, a catch-all for not just the supply chain but labor. I think if you peel it back, labor is a huge issue for everyone. Um, there's a uh, a real bifurcation now. Between companies that have exposure to legacy programs versus new programs, uh, l- legacy programs seem to be slowing, and new programs are growing. And I think that's what you're seeing. You know, if you were to compare, you know, head to head, Lockheed Martin to Northrop Grumman, that's a little bit of what's going on there. But you know, we we saw that we saw that broader when you look at Boeing's quarter. You know, they were impacted, you know, by supply chain. Uh, but I think the real surprise on the quarter was they took charges pretty much on every defense program and then some. Uh, and, and I think that gave investors a lot of, a lot of pause in that um, these are programs that they already had taken many charges on. These are programs that they said they were probably done taking charges on. And, and they just said, they're done taking charges on them again. And as a result, I mean, fool me once, right? Um, I don't think anybody believed that. And then, and then the second thing on the defense side of Boeing, um, and, and typically, right, we don't usually talk about Boeing's defense business all that much. We usually focus on commercial. Um, they, they burned cash this year, and they're going to burn cash next year in a broader right. market where nobody's not making cash. In defense. Everybody's making cash at defense, kind of except Boeing. Um, and I think that caught investors off guard. And, and the stock sold off that they almost 10%. Uh, and I don't, I don't think anybody was expecting that. Um, and they also came out and said on their 737 deliveries, they're going to be at about 375 this year. And just to remind everybody, the original target was 500. It went from 500 to 400 to 375. And our best guess will probably be around 370 when it's all said and done. Um, but that, that, that kind of was not a spectacular quarter for them. Uh, but it was really mixed. I mean, You're really starting to see performance differences between the companies and how they deploy capital matter uh, in how the stocks are responding.
0: It certainly is interesting. And I have a question. Uh, I want to bring uh, Sash into the discussion, but I've got a question to get all of your guys' perception on whether or not share buybacks are something that's going to continue now that it's becoming a political issue in the United States, where some of the folks who are even in the industry are saying like, wow, it's not really a good look for us uh, you know to go to the department and to go to Congress and ask for more money and say we can't put these things on contract, we can't take the risk and are then go ahead and do share buybacks. Which, which uh, again, I mean, the accusation is that it's unimaginative. Go ahead.
3: Let me let me just jump in on that debate quickly. Right. Um, if you look at the free cash conversions of the companies, it's nothing's really changed all that much. Right. I mean, defense companies are very cash generative companies usually. You know, you know, even Boeing's, but not in the near term um, they generate typically a uh, free cash conversion of about hundred percent of net income uh, because of the nature of the industry and you know how they're, how the payments and things work so in a, in an environment where they really can't do big M; right because of um, you know we've, we've seen everything happen with the Rocketdyne deal and other things so, so if big m; is off the table what else can they do with the money but behind- besides return it to shareholders? And one could say, oh, they could invest, but are they incented to invest in programs that aren't in the budget? And you know, there's, right. there's, there's factors at play that, to be fair, I mean, are beyond the scope of, of the companies. And I, and I like to come back to um, one example. I'll say this and I'll kind of get off my soapbox. Textron invested their own capital in the Scorpion. It wasn't a budget item. They thought they could sell some of them but they didn't sell any of them. And if the DOD really wanted to put its money where its mouth is, they would have bought a couple hundred of those things and set an example and said, hey, you know what? If you invest in something innovative, we can buy it even though it's not a budget line item today. But I I would argue um, that no defense company is incented to be innovative and do a new product if it's not in the budget because it takes years to get it in the budget. So it's, right. it's this weird situation that they're in, that they're generating cash, what else can they do with it?
0: Uh, especially if you don't get it mean, right? and I completely understand that, right? You can develop a better mousetrap, you don't get to sell the better mousetrap like you used to be able to do decades ago. You now have to create a requirement, you have to compete against it, and you may have come up with a brilliant idea, and now you're competing against everybody, right? So you, you don't get that in, uh, you know, where you've taken the risk and you, you get a potential reward. Um, Let me, we can talk a little bit more about this later I want to get Sash into the discussion, European markets uh, and how they performed and whether some of this buoyancy or uh, happy, sad, happy, sad behavior is being mirrored over there uh, in Europe, Sash, and how earnings played into it, right? I mean, we saw Airbus report, we saw Talos report, uh, Saab, uh, MTU, and and other leading European names. Kind of walk us through how the group performed and why in Europe.
2: Yeah, okay. I mean, look, the group performed well. Um, If you reported this week and you and they pretty much hit your numbers. You were going to be up. And um, Airbus was up nine percent this week. Talos was up nine point three percent this week. Safran five point six. Saab up four point one. MTU up five point seven percent. Kongsberg up five point five. And pretty much without exception, all of them were up on the day of their earnings. And you know if they reported before Friday, the you know the days afterwards as well. So it was a it, it so far it's been a positive quarter. Probably most positive for companies with significant U.S. dollar revenues, because the companies with significant U.S. dollar revenues, particularly Airbus, Safran, and MTU, because they all sell their core civil aviation products in dollars, all raise their guidance for the full year because the dollar's trading at parity with the euro. And even at the half-year stage back in July, uh, the dollar the dollar was trading at about 107, 108. So, you know, the, the strength of the dollar has been the most fantastic tailwind for predominantly civil aerospace companies, but actually also, you know, com- com- companies like Tarlis. Uh, and that was a very, very consistent message coming coming through these numbers. Um, there are a couple of themes that I think are very, very interesting. I'm going to pick up on Ron's point about sort of innovation and what do you invest in if you don't invest in share buybacks. European companies are behind the curve in terms of share buybacks. I personally think that's a good thing. Um, I I'm with you, Olga, I think share buybacks send a very, very negative message. Um, certainly to you know to the governments that you want to help you with with problems of inflation and fixed price contracts you know if you want the government to bail you out of the fixed price contracts you're probably better off not doing share buybacks and a couple of the companies particularly uh, Airbus and safran um, quietly acknowledged that uh, on their earnings calls one of the most interesting themes in this set of numbers came from safran MTU and Raytheon technologies which is that um, there's been a bit of a bringing forward of the date at which new pricing for en- civil engine spare parts supplies. I mean, it's now beginning of November, or November rather than the beginning of January. And what this means is that there's been a degree of buying of engine spares taking place in Q3 that would normally have happened in Q4. It's, this is a fool's paradise. All it means is, you, you, you know, as the engine company, you've brought this forward a bit. I think the engine companies are going to have a bit of a hangover as we go into 2023, because what they would normally think of as being a strong Q1 will, you know, those spare sales will already have occurred. And so I'm I'm surprised that the Indian companies did that. I don't think it, you know, I don't think they're actually going to make any, um, uh, you know, long term benefit from that. And it's very interesting. That was certainly a, a focus for uh, a number of the calls uh, in, in Europe this week.
0: Uh, and uh broader market right i mean are there, are you seeing the same trends in europe that we're seeing here uh in the united states of this sort of you know buoyancy earnings up uh, the economies may not be as bad off as we thought the coming reception may not be as bad as uh as we had feared uh and that some of the underlying fundamentals might be actually a little bit Stronger. What's, what's the sense? Not,
2: not really, because Europe isn't worrying as much about, rec- I, I mean, the recession that Europe is worrying about is a recession purely about uh, gas, and I mean the, um, the you know, uh, heating gas, not petrol. It's about gas prices right. in Europe, the impact of inflation, and therefore it is very, very heavily focused on Ukraine. That is the focus of you know, certain European politicians and a lot of European investors. Uh, so there's, there's less volatility there, although clearly, you know, if Wall Street has a bad day, Europe follows and vice versa. Uh,
0: Richard, thanks so much for being very patient, because normally we go one, one, one to each of you uh, to start off. But I wanted to get your sense on uh, the numbers, the earnings and, and what you make of them as somebody who looks at not just the OEM level, but also the suppliers.
1: Yeah, you know, it's pretty clear that there's uh, issues getting cash for the system. And and more importantly, as Ron said, winners and losers. Um At this point, you know, I focus of all the companies that announced this week, I focus most closely on Boeing. And that's just become a very strange, strange story. Uh, I don't understand exactly what's going on on the the commercial side. Uh, I do understand what's going on the defense side. I think we all do. You know, I mean, they basically signed a bunch of aggressive money losing upfront contracts years ago, hoping to leverage, you know, cash flow from the commercial business back when the going was good. And now they're paying for it. And KC-46. That's that's maybe moved a little bit past the explicable because I would have thought they would have made that better by now. But T seven is just a gift that's just starting to give. You know, in other words, there'll be billions more in write offs from that. You can see that coming. I mean, it was an impossibly low bid given everything, and it's not even clear they can make that good in the production phase. So uh, I. I guess it's a mix of stuff they can't do and stuff that they should be doing. I thought Ron's question to Dave Calhoun was dead on and of course wasn't answered for wrong reasons. I mean, what the hell? (laughs) On the commercial side, I don't get it. I mean, I really don't because the inventory isn't really budging a whole heck of a lot. Um, Production rates are no great shakes, but what's going on? They're taking aircraft out of inventory, delivering them. They're replacing them with aircraft they've built. I mean, this is all a baffler for a market that's pretty strong for single aisle models. So what's the bottleneck here? None of this is really being dealt with in terms of explanations. It's it's all a bit strange. Yeah, I'll weigh in a little bit on the whole earnings thing. I I think I'm more with Sash than Ron. It hurts me to say that, Ron, sorry. Uh, But, you know, first of all, I've never understood um, the whole, um, you know, Textron, uh, Scorpion program. (laughs) I just regarded that as kind of a dunderheaded product launch, but we've disagreed with that about that for years. Um, And I think there are things that they could be doing, but most of all, as Ash said, there's just the optics of playing poverty because of inflation while simultaneously giving lots of cash to shareholders. So a lot of it is optics. Having said that, Ron's point is well taken. What would they be doing? It's not like they'd be launching new programs. Can they really justify spending? on capacity expansion for programs that haven't even hit full rate production. Bizarrely, that's F-35. You know, I, If it actually did get FRP approval, then maybe they'd be justified to spend a lot more on the supply chain and, and you know ramping up. But until that happens, I'm not so sure that they'd be completely justified in the eyes of shareholders to do that. So that's something I think about.
0: And very quickly, tell the audience... Uh, about uh, Ron's uh, exchange uh, with uh, David Calhoun, and when what you made of it, taking Ron out of the discussion uh, as he was he was a participant.
1: Ron asked the right question, like, "Why is it this being dealt with pure and simple? You know, and what was?" Uh, Bizarre about the response was it, it? It wasn't the usual bromides and platitudes of "Well, yes, what well, this is why we're standing up a committee on execution, blah blah blah." It was the denial that this was a problem that is perfectly normal. That in the finest defense market of all time, that oh yeah, of course we just lost three billion dollars. Sorry, you know, just, that was just uh, just kind of bizarre. I mean, obviously he gets the question a lot. Maybe he's feeling a bit um, conscious, self-conscious about the whole thing. But still, I mean, it it would be better, I think, more reassuring if he simply either had some kind of bottled answer or just, again, resorted to the usual pat
0: bromides. Look, I mean, but in this day and age, right, nobody takes responsibility nor necessarily apologizes for anything, right? I mean, so you have to understand that that's sort of an underlying phenomenon, whether it's in politics or in business or anywhere else as a general rule. Right. That's Um, what pat
1: bromides are for, right?
0: I mean, you just say, oh, yeah, you know. the, yep. These are, but there are I'm, a bunch
1: of reasons. I mean, remember when Calhoun came in? The first thing he did was, yeah, you know, kept talking about the mess that he inherited and and just what a complete nightmare it all was. Well, we're a couple of years in at this point. Uh, it the time to blame predecessors and decisions made in the past. Eh, that's that's gone.
0: Well, and and, I, and 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 he was also on the board uh, when some of those decisions were a being fact made. Fact that's
1: conveniently forgotten by him and everybody. Yes.
0: Um, uh, Sash, uh, you have your hand up. Just want to go to you uh, real quick uh, before we uh, ch- shift the, the conversation a little bit.
2: Yeah, thanks. I mean, I, I just thought actually following it from that and um, uh, the comment that Ron made earlier on just about phone deliveries this year, 370, 375 or whatever. I mean, it's it's really worth highlighting how wide the gap is. And the gap really, I think, widened slightly as a result of these um. Uh, these quarterly numbers between Boeing and Airbus you know Airbus is targeting 700 deliveries let's say it's 695 um, that's still within 30 aircraft of where they started the, uh started the year they generate cash they generated about a billion more cash in the third quarter than we expected they're going to end the year with 10 billion euros of net cash um, and it's a it's it's a very very Remarkably stable company that's performing quite well at that. There's quite a lot of focus on is the A321 XLR a couple of months late in terms of its entry into service? I'm um, saying, so yeah, it probably is a bit, but um, is the A321 XLR uh, you know hopelessly adrift? No, I think what they've done is they've sort of refined the estimate on certification, probably in the right way. So it was very interesting comparing contrasting the uh, the, the two companies' comments about what should be their core businesses this week.
0: Let me just ask, I want to I want to talk about the China market. Uh, because on the one hand, you know, Boeing did something that sounded to some as tone deaf, uh, which might not have been right, uh, especially uh, if uh, you are very keen on, you know, having your products go back in service uh, and indeed have China buy new Boeing products, uh, which China has not done since 2017. But Ron, but putting aside the merits of the case, right? Is there a perception on Wall Street that buybacks? and the extent of, of profit taking, right? I mean, it is the fiduciary responsibility of every business not to leave a single penny on the table if you can afford it, right? There is no charity associated with this. If prices are high, you're a gas company, you're gonna make a lot of money. Uh, and and that's just how it goes. Um, do, but is there a sense at all on the street that political perception may change and and therefore, you um, companies will be penalized for it somehow uh, or or is that just a sort of something that people in Washington talk a little bit about but is not really a legitimate concern um, all right so are investors
3: concerned about that I would say no they're not. That being said that doesn't mean it's not a legitimate concern um, it's just not right. on investor minds right so um, you know so a yes to both boxes it's something that people in Washington talk about it's something that investors are not concerned about. But that doesn't mean the Venn diagram doesn't overlap, that it should be something that you're concerned about. And the guys in Washington and, and women, everybody, the people in Washington um, are, are not on something. So, but just back to my original point, um, if you look at the margins of the industry, so the profit margin, you know, the margins in the industry weren't like record high. There's nothing like that going on, right? It, um, and, and in fact, growth in the industry this year has been muted because of supply chain. Right. So you're not seeing you know, huge top line growth. You're not seeing profit margins that are out of whack somehow from historical um, precedent up or down. Uh, they they always have generated cash and you know they've deployed it in different ways over the years, but they're really constrained in the current political environment how they can deploy it. So you could pile it up on your balance sheet, maybe you could invest it in you know something on a on a production line, but ultimately, I mean the reality is Vago, you know this, if you invest it in a production line. You you get it back in your overheads, right? So the government just right. pays you back anyway, right? So, right. what are you going to do with it, right? And and it and that's you know if you're General Dynamics, you can invest it in Gulfstream, you know if you're Boeing, um, you can invest it in you know all the things they do, um, and as we've argued, maybe they should have. Um, but if you're Lockheed Martin or you're Northrop Grumman and you're you're hundred percent defense, the places you can invest it are kind of limited. They're all doing. Um, right. You know, if you look at all the major contractors today, they all have uh, a technologies group, a venture fund that they're trying to uh, to seed uh, and invest there. So they're trying to do that, but they're to some extent, their hands really are kind of limited what they can do with it. To be fair,
0: um, uh, Richard, uh, you've got your hand up, and then we're going to go into a little bit of a lightning round uh, in a moment. Go ahead. Yeah, I was just. Uh... Going
1: to follow on to what um, Sash said about Airbus just being a stark contrast. You know, getting to uh, going from fifty to month to sixty-five per month and just steady as she goes. Very strong market, and it's pretty clear that the recession won't get in the way of anything. We've been concerned about that for some from some time. So uh, again, it's just that, that that contrast is
0: well worth noting. Um, let me uh, shift. Uh, to uh, uh, China. Uh, Boeing was selling merchandise on its website and sending uh, the link out uh, to folks on the 50th anniversary of doing business uh, in China. Obviously, a very important market for the company. It has an assembly center uh, in China as well. Um, So there were folks who were saying, like, guys, what bad timing on the Chinese Communist Party's You know, meeting where you know uh, Xi Jinping was coronated, and not just was he coronated, but Hu Jintao was humiliated, uh, and a whole bunch of hardliners came in power. And indeed, we saw a sell-off worldwide uh, in uh, China uh, over concerns uh, that it's going to become more authoritarian, more hardline, more anti-business in its tone. Richard, uh, let's you know, but what I'm interested in is is not. A, the outlook for Boeing in the country, which does appear to be changing. Uh, and second, you know, Olaf Schultz is going to be visiting uh, Beijing as well. Uh, and uh, with a very large German trade delegation, they're trying to do a barnstorming tour. Uh, so it's a lot of people, uh, a, a large number of visits in a very brief amount of time. Right. They're going to great lengths to say we're not even spending the night in Beijing. Um, you know what what this means in sort of the broader decoupling, and what we should expect next uh, from from either side, right? Because these are hardliners, and indeed, it looks like Hugh was who was uh, humiliated uh, as a message to the moderates. Why don't you start us off, uh, Richard, and then let's go around the horn.
1: Yeah. You know, fascinating developments. I think there's a tendency when it comes to China to go to extremes, you know, from despondency to uh, return to business as usual. Things will be as they were. And uh, we're seeing the pendulum move in a positive direction. Perhaps I think I've been as guilty of that as anybody, you know, from the perspective of, uh, oh, God, you know, China's never coming back to, uh, well, okay, it's going to be authoritarian, perhaps even totalitarian, It's not good, but business goes on. And, uh, you know, even though you have to be mindful of, uh, well, Ron correctly identified it about a year ago as tech war. You have to be absolutely mindful of that. You have to be mindful of all sorts of military end use considerations associated with the other aspects of, uh, of decoupling, especially when it comes to aerospace, but also semiconductors and semiconductor production. Uh, but nevertheless, business goes on. You just have to be mindful. It's a big market. And it's even though it's moving away from a market economy, uh, you know, I mean, Henry Ford sold tractors to Soviet Russia, you know, it's just stuff happens. And uh, there's a whole bunch of data points with Boeing. You know, it's, it, yes, the website thing was funny with the 50th anniversaries. So and what does that mean? But, you know, there was also the Miat flight. Uh, and now, according to Bloomberg, China Southwest has put the max back in its schedule. Um, you know, and uh, China Daily yesterday had a little blurb about Boeing's view of China right there on the front page, which was, uh, you know, not, I'm a believer that nothing there happens by accident anymore; it's all well coordinated. So I think you're seeing really? kind of a part really point.
0: that wasn't a. Really, that wasn't just the spontaneous front page produced. By, no, I'm just kidding. Go ahead. Yeah, indeed.
1: You know, it, it's 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 uh, sort of stay. You know, we're back to Soviet watching, back to the good old days of the 80s. You know, when you and I got our careers career started, and uh, you know, you, you began to see who was being airbrushed out or rehabilitated or whatever else. And it's pretty clear that uh, that Boeing perhaps is uh, being a bit rehabilitated in preparation for some kind of air transport reopening in the next couple of years. That that's good. It's not as good as back when you know China was heading for 30% of the single-hour market. That just isn't happening anymore, but it's not going to be nothing for nobody. So we're seeing a bit of a, like I said, pendulum swing in a positive direction with China.
0: Uh, Sash, uh, what do you make uh, of uh, the Schultz trip and what we should expect for uh, from Europe on China, especially as uh, folks are grappling with what economic growth looks like post Russia? Right. I mean, virtually every Mercedes Benz, I think, uh, just shut down uh, its uh, factory. Ford has shut down its factories uh, in Russia as well and is looking to sell them off. Right. How do you what's what's your stance on sort of where we are and where we're going?
2: Look, just as Germany needs or needed. But still needs Russian gas, Germany needs uh, business in China. Germany has, um, it, the German economy and the Chinese economy have been absolutely interlinked and, uh, to, you know, certainly in Germany's case, totally dependent on China for, uh, you know, two decades or more. Um, Schultz is doing, you know, what he believes he has to do for, for the German economy. Um, is it wise? Is it pretty? No, not very. But it's entirely consistent with German uh, foreign-economic stroke economic policy for uh, as long as I can remember. Now, will we see civil aircraft orders? Probably not, I mean, Airbus has actually announced its civil aircraft orders from China this year. There was the very big one from the uh, the, the the four large Chinese, really the big three uh, Chinese airlines back in June, July. And then uh, Xiamin is still to be actually recorded in Airbus's order book, uh, but I suspect there won't be any more Airbus orders. Uh, so this is probably much more related to cars
0: and stuff like that, but we'll see. Ron, I want to get kind of a sentiment read uh, from you, uh, right? Um, what's, what's, right, I mean, this is an evolving picture. Um, Wall Street was kind of down on China uh, because, but for being, you know, okay, are the hardliners are in, in power now, uh, right? The United States is getting tough. We released a national defense strategy, nuclear posture review, as well as missile defense review, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But from your perspective, what are investors telling you about? where they think the relationship is going, right? I mean, we have positive signs that Boeing looks like uh, it may get some orders, right? I mean, at the end of the day, nobody wants to be purely dependent on Airbus, uh, right? I mean, that's one of the reasons the Chinese are developing their own industry so that eventually they can buy more local. Um, what's what's the, the sense on where we are, especially in the wake of the Communist Party Congress?
3: Yeah, I, I would say investors are just trying to figure it out. Um, I mean, you know, people saw the headlines about China Southern and and, and what's it all mean? Um, is this just sort of a slow reopening to the max? Um, if, you know, if it is, you know, why on the quarterly earnings call was management so sort of down on China? Um, you know, unless they read China wrong, which probably isn't right. Um, so I think it's just investors are trying to, to feel it out. I mean, uh, having... You know, the max be used again in China uh, on any level is, is clearly seen as a positive. Um, but I I I think people are confused. Does that mean you're going to see orders? You're going to see aircraft that are inventory delivered to the Chinese airlines? What what's that all mean? Uh, you know I, I spoke to a, a good industry contact of mine, and I mean there is a view out there that this is just China slowly reopening, just saying we're in no rush, and just kind of sending a signal that. Yeah, we, we acknowledge you're there, comrade, but you know what I mean? It's, it's just not doors wide open, let's have at it, right? So, so we'll see. So I guess the short answer is it's just, it's still a point of investors aren't sure. But, you know, as things do reopen for aviation in China, and you see Boeing take an increasing role in that, that will be seen as a positive.
0: Um, Sasha, I wanted you to start off on uh, the defense uh, side of things uh, by uh, talking to us a little bit about Ben Wallace, right? Rishi Sunak, the new prime minister, has asked Ben Wallace, uh, you know, has asked King Charles not to go to the COP27 conference, but he did ask Ben Wallace to stay on uh, as defense secretary, uh, and uh, but also to make cuts, right? We've been talking about uh, the notion and the popularity in British defense circles of three percent GDP for defense, uh, and certainly that's investment that you could see the UK uh, making uh, to improve its capabilities. But now we're also colliding with budgetary reality. Um, you know, where what what's his guidance, and what's the outlook from British uh, for British defense uh, as a consequence as as Sunak, Jeremy Hunt, and the team tries to reinstill confidence uh, in the British economy.
2: Ben Wallace being reappointed as defence secretary, I think he's good because he has a great deal of domain knowledge. He has a, you know, he's, um, he's been a very forceful defence uh, secretary in the UK and uh, defence is not a particularly important um, uh, ministry in uh, UK politics. It does not rank with the big spending ministers or the big economics, uh, you know, economic ministers, like the treasury. Uh, it needs the best ministers it can get and it doesn't always get them. So I'm, you know, I'm delighted to see him back. I didn't, I haven't actually looked yet at who the other uh, junior ministers are appointed around him. Um, I, you know, it'll be interesting to see if any of them have any particular uh, effect. I, I, I rather doubt it. So what we have now is what we have, uh, in defence, pretty much in every single government, which is a recurrence of the, uh, the war between. Um, the Defence Ministry, which likes to spend money because that's what it does, and the Treasury, which is way the most important department in um, uh, British politics, is probably the Treasury is probably the most important economics ministry in any European government. Actually, has tr- you know, huge powers and influence over the rest of government, and the Treasury hates Defence in general because Defence is fundamentally wasteful. They hate the Ministry of Defence because the Ministry of Defence, you know, it is. Even more wasteful, and so they always spend time trying to trying to stop you know as much defence spending as possible. It's been like that for you know hundred odd years, probably two hundred odd years. Um, the three percent number was very much a product uh, a product of Boris Johnson, who had no interest in economics but a great deal of interest in his own personal re-election. I, I think it was always a um, a very very big ask, and it was certainly a number for the end of the decade. We might yet get there, but, but you know, heaven, heaven alone knows at the moment. More important, I think, is whether defence spending can rise as a percentage of GDP by you know, a few um, uh, basis points or tens of basis points over the next you know, three to five years. Given that Richard Sooners government has got two years to run, I doubt we'll see defence spending move very much away from its, um, uh, its, its current trajectory, which is slight increases. But I I think one of the most interesting areas of of debate, actually it's not, it's um, argument between the Treasury and defence, is actually over how you fund Ukraine. The Treasury is saying, you know, the war in Ukraine, you, defence, should be funding that out of your budget. And the Ministry of Defence is saying, well, if that's the case, that's fine, but we'll cut a lot of other stuff to to fund it. Um, Actually, for the Treasury to say that uh, the war in Ukraine should be funded out of the core defence budget is utterly preposterous. Um you know, this go- governments in the UK never fund wars out of core departmental budgets. When we fight world wars, which you know has, has happened on occasion, we raise totally separate funding for it. And funding for wars, World War One, World War II, runs at, you know, sometimes over 100 percent of GDP. We raise very, very do very big bond issues and then pay them off uh, over the subsequent um five, ten decades or so. So to argue that the war in Ukraine should be Funded out of the defence budget is tosh, but th- you know this is the nature of the of the debate between uh, defence and the treasury. We'll see. I mean, it. I, I think the more interesting issue is can the UK afford to buy um, products based in dollars at the moment? Because when sterling is down at you know 110, 115 or so, buying products which are priced in dollars is unbelievably expensive. Um, and so I think that there, you know, if there are uh, Readjustments to the defence budget, it will probably be pushing out some purchases, for example, another batch of Chinook helicopters. UK has no need for more Chinooks. We've got literally dozens of the damn things and we don't use them very much. Um, uh, the timing of the F-35 per, uh, purchase, more P8, you know, uh, sell, um E7s and so forth. I suspect those will all be pushed into the next government because they're just too expensive at the moment, given the strength of the dollar. Uh, that's most likely to be how, how this is resolved.
0: And I, I, should make a correction, uh, right. Uh, Boeing does not assemble Airbus assembles jets there. Uh, there is a, uh, finishing, uh, center where seats and bathrooms and the like get put in. Uh, so thanks very much for, uh, that correction, uh, sash. Um, let me, let me shift to the National Defense Strategy Nuclear Posture Review and to a lesser degree, the Missile Defense Review, if you guys want to talk about it. Uh, Richard, uh, start us off right. I mean, pretty consistent with what the administration had said uh, earlier this year. I met with, uh, um, um, you know, spoke with a foreign uh de- defense uh friend of mine uh and he said look i mean this was pretty consistent with what the administration had told us in march uh in terms of what the priority is the china focus the importance of you know whatever capabilities we have also being aimed at the russians which will be problematic you know you're uh you know on the friday round table there was a little bit of uh, criticism that there was not you know that the middle east didn't feature prominently uh but just start us off on this and, and ron sort of get your sense on uh, you know whether it moved any needle uh, on the street, my expectation is not really. Uh, but go ahead.
1: You know, in terms of putting the Middle East in, you know, it's an important consideration when shaping the other. Um, requirements and, uh, and considerations for national defense strategy, but I don't think in and of itself, it should be an important consideration. You know, it's, it's simply a potential distraction rather than a place we'd focus resources or requirements. It's China. And, you know, the whole um, acute threat versus pacing threat, um, that was a really good way to frame it back in, you know, earlier this year. Uh, it's now pretty well, the good news is that Russia is clearly not much of a threat uh obviously that's you know it's it's a horrible tragedy for for ukrainians and and we I, in my view we, we need to keep uh doing what we're doing but in terms of it being any kind of acute threat it's it's pretty clear that's not the case the bad news is that china is not just a pacing threat it might be an acute threat because of the whole taiwan issue and that raises one of the big aspects uh, you know i thought it was a for a china folks doc, document you know looking at um command control communications, the importance of range and and, and long range strike, and of course, uh, space as areas of prioritization and focus, That that's all correct. The problem is, of course, the adversary gets a say here too, and we don't really know the timing of that Chinese threat. And the response in terms of defense spending priorities and force structure and whatever else varies massively with what the timing of that threat, we just can't know, can we? So that was sort of the, the big question I had in all of it. The other thing I noticed, um, is that the line between um, broader industrial policy and defense strategy has never been so blurred in my mind. And you, know, you look at these priorities, they're dependent of course upon, yep, uh, technology semiconductors. And that's why I think the most interesting aspect of uh, Biden's national security approach is the, you know, the sanctioning of Chinese semiconductor capabilities, which I think is, is a game changer potentially. Um, or perhaps the the bringer of unintended consequences, we don't know. But in terms of executing on this national security strategy, so much depends on keeping China from acquiring these building blocks, these capability building blocks, and that has the potential for doing that. And meanwhile, enhancing ours, both in in terms of new manufacturing facilities that aren't in the front line in Taiwan, but also establishing capabilities uh, you know in in, among, in in different production sites and and and, and, and in terms of capabilities. Um, again, it's 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 industrial policy. It's technology and industrial policy, uh, which used to be sort of a dirty word in, in Washington. but I think now in service to this national security strategy makes uh, quite a lot of sense. So uh, to me, it was, it was a very interesting moment in
0: time. Uh, And I I should say, you know, in the nuclear posture review, two weapons uh, would potentially get forced out, the the gravity um, weapon, uh, unguided gravity bomb, the B-83, uh, and the submarine-launched cruise missile nuclear, although uh, there's likely to be a congressional battle on that because Congress has been uh, supportive. What I think people were encouraged by is that, you know, the United States did not swear off of first use and said that deterrence is a fundamental Uh, attribute of nuclear weapons. So there was a lot of relief on that. Ron, just very briefly, did this move any needles? Did you get any calls from investors saying, hey, you know that missile defense review really is something?
3: We didn't, but the the nuclear posture review, I think did give more credence, confidence behind the view that, uh, for example, for Northrop Grumman, since they're on two legs of the, the triad, that in the nuclear posture review, they did say fully fund the triad, all of it. Um, right. So fr- from that perspective, uh, that was clearly uh, a positive for uh, uh, Northrop Grumman and General Dynamics and the, you know, and the suppliers in those programs. But we, we didn't. right. I mean, it was an earnings week and I mean, there was a lot going on. And, and it, I think this, you know, pardon the pun, just sort of flew under the radar.
0: <laughs> well, uh, well done. And I should have let off with that, right, that the entire triad gets funded, even if these two uh, programs uh, would be uh, cut uh, Sash, uh, we always uh, get uh, your take, uh, and if you can give it really quickly, uh, Russia says uh, its mobilization is done. It's going to rush uh, more than 80,000 or moving more than 80,000 or, you know, is moving 80,000 new troops to the region and uh, stuff like that. We had a massive swarming attack uh, over the weekend of Ukrainian drones that struck the Black, fleet, uh, Black Sea fleet in, in uh, Sevastopol, um, uh, you know, wreaking uh, damage as everybody gets ready for the Ukrainians to make their push on Kherson. Um, you know, give us, and, and, and Russia's answer immediately after that was, okay, we're canceling the grain deal. Uh, you know, kel surprise, as you would say in Europe, uh, of course, they're canceling the grain deal. Everybody knew they were gonna cancel the grain deal anyway. Uh, and that they were just sort of looking for a pretext. And, and this one is a pretty good one. W- what's the sense on where the war is right now? Because folks have this sort of triumphalism and have a tendency of forgetting that Ukraine is fighting a nation that's, you know, three times larger and has allies like China North Korea and Iran that are willing to give it weapons.
2: Uh, actually, I'll, I'll pick you up on that last one. I mean, I, I don't think that their allies in China and North Korea are willing to give them half as much in terms of weaponry or indeed the assistance that really matters which is I star uh, surveillance and target acquisition in particular that the West is giving Ukraine it, it's a, it's a much more um, level fight you know even fights than uh, some people think yes Russia is about three times the size but Russia is only partially mobilized Ukraine is very very heavily mobilized and it's you know, it's backed by the US and, and Europe US and Europe versus um, what is political support by China but it's certainly not military support at the moment. That's a that's a fairly even fight. Um, uh, It doesn't mean that any of us want to be there at the moment. I certainly wouldn't want to be one of those Russian uh, conscripts who've been called up to go to the front. Probably pretty badly equipped, and winter is coming on. That's a um, that's a really really uh, you know tough thing. I I think for them this war um, comes in fits and starts. Uh, We have periods where there is attritional combat which is most of the time there are short periods of breakthroughs on either side um and there are periods when the two you know the two sides try something asymmetric the russians have been doing more of that recently but the storming ground attack by the ukrainians is you know their their attempt to you know to take the russians off balance at at the moment they've also been trying to attack bridges with in in various ways and all of those you know are um i think they are breaks from what is fairly brutal attrition in the donbass and the Ukrainians trying to build up their forces for whichever attack they w- they wish to do next. They talked a lot about attacking um, uh, down in the uh, south around Kherson, and of course the you know the biggest counterattack they did then was around uh, Kharkiv. Um, the question is going to be how long does it take before winter really comes in and makes. Um, it's not that it makes going hard; it actually makes going easier. But the whole process of, of looking after your equipment and indeed your manpower when the temperatures drop into the um, uh, uh, drop well below zero—that that's when winter very much, um, uh, you know, if not stops, certainly limits uh, conventional um, mobility and, and operations for a while. But uh, actually, you know, in terms of ground gain, ground loss, no great change this week. But um, both sides are, are trying to test
0: each other. And, and very quickly before we go, uh, Wings Club, uh, one of uh, aviation's truly great clubs, founded by some of the giants of the industry, Juan Trip, Eddie Rickenbacker uh, and the like, always has an annual dinner, used to be at the Waldorf, now at the Hilton in New York. Uh, talk to us about this year's honoree uh, and how amazing it is that he actually won the award <laughs> given how hard he made life for most airlines.
1: Well, you know, hero or villain, uh, Bill Frankie was an amazing pioneer in creating what we now know as the ultra low cost carrier landscape. You know, his uh, his he was an impresario for so many of them, not just in the U.S., uh, you know, frontier spirit, whatever else, but also globally. Um, in, in terms of uh, I- increasing the accessibility of air transport to lots of people, absolutely a hero in terms of driving everyone's margins down maybe not so much, but, you know, a fascinating figure in aviation, uh, nevertheless.
0: In, in Indeed, indeed. Uh, um, everybody, thanks very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Uh, always a pleasure. Uh, a highlight of the week. Thanks so very much. hope you guys have uh, a great day, uh, a great week, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much.
3: Always a pleasure, Vago. Thanks.
2: Yeah, it's always a pleasure. Thanks so much, Vago.
0: Yeah, great to be on, Vago. Thank you.